Romange crossed his arms. I'm not paying him. He's paying me. The Atolian lifted one shoulder and let it drop. All right, he can travel with us half passage as he is a friend of yours. The Atolian waited, far and away the most eloquent non-speaker I think I have ever known. By gods, I have no time for this, shouted Romange. The Atolian took a half step away. Fine, said Romange, throwing up a hand in defeat. He comes with us, but I am not giving him a single henat, you understand? He shook his finger in the Atolian's face. The Atolian waited until Romange turned again to his cloth before he said, Needs a sword. May the Queen of the Night take you, Romange turned back to him. I should provide a freeloader with a sword, and you are asking this because I look like your generous old uncle, maybe? I shuffled further away, but the Atolian only nodded. Just like he said with a straight face. Bargaining 101. Welcome, caravan guards and thieving children. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to help you recover from Return of the Thief. It's April 18th, and today we're discussing Chapter 3 of Thick as Thieves. This is a pretty long chapter in which... Not a whole lot happens in terms of events, but we kind of, they get underway on their journey, and there's a lot of character stuff. Mm-hmm. This is the chapter where Kamet's uh, conception of cost just really flips. Like, the first half of the chapter, um, all of Kamet's narration is about how culturally oblivious cost seems, and then he realizes, wait a minute, this guy knows what's up. He has a plan. <laughs> And then Kamet feels embarrassed, and Costas says, We all do our time under the sign of the idiot, which I love. <laughs> Great line. Yeah. Great philosophy. It's it's interesting. I wonder how much, like, Costas is clearly not a fool. He does have this whole plan for how to get out. He shows quick thinking throughout this whole chapter. But in the beginning, I'm not sure how much of what he does is, like, a few things when they're at the inn and they've told the innkeeper this sob story about losing all their guards and they're gonna get money in the morning from Costas's father, whatever. They go to eat dinner outside the inn and Costas tells Kamet to sit down and eat with him. And Kamet can't argue about this because it would take more of people's attention. And uh, he says, like, the server raising his eyebrows as he served me. And so Kamet was just trying to eat quickly to get this aberration out of people's sight because everyone was thinking it was weird he started saying like you don't need to call me that and Kamet says like gods how stupid was he in his own <laughs> head and then Kamet narrates he repeats it and Costas remembered where we were and the story I had given the innkeeper so and I guess it just kind of emphasizes how foreign it it feels to Costas to try and treat Kamet as inferior. You know, we it said in the last chapter, Kamet narrated that from the moment Costas met Kamet, he had been thinking of Kamet as a free man. Yeah, which is interesting because they do have slavery in Atolia. Mm-hmm. We know this. Or at the very least, we know they have it in Sunus. Yeah. I would think that Costas's attitude towards this would maybe indicate that even though they do have it in Atolia, Costas isn't that used to it all we know about slavery in atolia is that it does exist in some capacity 
Yeah, in some capacity, because Atolia said she had seen men looking at slave girls. Like, she narrates that in Queen of Atolia. And then Kamet says there were very few slaves in the palace. And he was the only one in the upper palace in Atolia. And that's, like, all we know about it. It very much feels like Costas takes for granted treating people equally and with respect. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though he doesn't necessarily come from a place where that's the cultural norm either. Yeah. It overcomes even his attention to detail in regards to to the plan here. Mm -hmm. Kamet in this chapter, in contrast to Costas, Kamet is almost thinking of Costas as a second Nehuzerish someone he can't argue with. He says, I didn't dare try to dissuade him, uh, very aware that I had been disobedient over the matter of the chain of the river. Yeah, that's and, a key word there. Yeah. So he's still like, this is very much a hierarchy. He can't disagree with Costas. He has to do what Costas says. He's still thinking of getting away in what he calls escape, mm-hmm. just like he's escaping from Nehuzerish. Uh He says, just in a normal conversation with Costas, when they're not trying to fool anyone, he says, I almost added master, but bit it back in time. So he's still, I mean, it makes sense that he's still in this mindset that's kept him safe his whole life. Like, mm. these are the things that he has to do to keep living. Kamet also is adjusting to, I think how he refers to it is like imitating the manners of a free man or something because he's still not used to thinking of himself like that he shivers as he puts on a free man's pants that he hasn't worn before he walks next to costas instead of behind him he uses the dye at that uh, caravan site for the first time and he feels a sense of unreality as he buckles on a sword mm-hmm. because they weren't allowed to touch weapons and Costas has to tell him to look up when he talks to costas because he's a free man so he doesn't have to lower his eyes anymore you know, thinking back to, um, thinking back to a conspiracy of kings and Sophus's experience being enslaved in Sunus, it seems like the the people that he worked with there had more of a sense of uh, there was all that talk about this this baron owns my body, but doesn't I don't owe him my loyalty, I don't owe him my mind, whereas Kamet. It's very, um, like, these sorts of power dynamics have been very embedded in him psychologically. It's not even only slaves in that barracks. It's also free men who are working for a wage. It's not so much... And I think it seems like it's more common in Sunnis for people to become slaves because they... um, Couldn't pay debts debts or whatever. Yeah, and so they're people who have not been enslaved their whole lives. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kamet has never been free. And it, slavery also seems much more built into the Mede economy and psyche of, like, I think Kamet narrated in the, the last chapter, maybe, that when he was mentioning the possibility of uprisings, he was saying the Medes feared very little as they feared their slaves. Mm, um, yeah. Yeah, which definitely, at the very least, implies a much larger population. Mm-hmm. Do they even think about what caused the fire on the boat? I don't think so. I was They're, wondering that too. <laughs> I'm not even curious about it. Like, Kamet mentions that he overhears people talking about, oh, the the captain was irresponsible and caused this fire that was inconvenient for everybody financially. But it doesn't seem like... They're just like, yeah, the boat caught fire. It happens sometimes. <laughs> it's this uh, clear element of chance and fate. 
that yeah. changes the the course of their journey. And Kamet says uh, that uh, he narrates he's planning to escape in this big town, and he said he narrates, "I could thank the gods that the boat hadn't caught fire next to one of those sad little mud hut towns where he wouldn't be able to slip away." Yeah, you can thank them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you sure can. That's exactly who you can thank. <laughs> It's uh, not not the first instance of of boat arson in, oh, yes. in the Queen's Deep, <laughs> and not the last. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie; I remembered the wine merchant playing a much bigger role in this chapter. Yeah, we he basically do much. don't even see him. Mm-hmm. It's basically he just walks into the courtyard, and Kamet says, "Oh my God, that's him! Okay, let's go!" And they go, and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> and we don't at this point have any indication that it was important for them to leave at that moment it genuinely does feel like a coincidence mm-hmm. remind me before the boat caught fire what well, their travel plan was different right they were gonna sail up the river actually let, let me just get the book it's right here like wasn't wasn't their plan to sail up this river and then go i don't know somewhere else um... Yeah, okay, so originally Casa says, uh, we aren't going down river, we'll go north instead to Menlay, and then follow the Emperor's road to Zabrista on the coast, an Atolian ship will carry us across the Middle Sea from there. Okay, so, and he came up with this whole plan for going to the East Caravan site and bribing, taking a job and then bribing someone else to take that job to confuse whoever is pursuing him and then going to the the west side and picking up the real job and even tricking the innkeeper while seeming not to trick him. Very yeah, sneaky. Costas is taking advantage of the fact that people assume that he is a big Domitolian. Yeah. Taking advantage of being underestimated. There it is again. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's cool how... Um, People are, are perceived so differently in different contexts, in different cultural contexts, in different social contexts, which which we see a lot. Uh, the Atolians have a totally different perspective on Jen than the Edesians do. Mm-hmm. But underestimating Costas seems to be pretty universal. <laughs> <laughs> I love Costas because he is truly just some guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. And Kemet narrates about him. Uh, when he's realizing suddenly how smart Costas is, uh, and that he let his own opinion show, whoops, uh, he had an open face and an honest one, and I'd mistaken that for stupidity. He was not a liar by nature, certainly, but he was not the fool I had taken him for. Yeah, and then Costas says, not the fool you took me for, huh? <laughs> Mind reader. I, it's fun that... that... Kamet, he he makes so many assumptions about Costas, and he's kind of mistaken about Costas. But I feel like Costas kind of has Kamet's number from day one. Yeah. Which may be because, like, Kamet says several times, you know, like, uh, when Costas says, like, we're not going to Zabrista, Kamet narrates, I swallowed, my mouth suddenly dry, I had been indiscreet. So kind of get the sense like it's not super hard 
to pick up on Gambit's real thoughts. Like, Gambit thinks he's being slick, but he's not. Yeah. And, like, Costas, because he's coming from this perspective of we're on an equal playing field, he uh, he doesn't have as many of the the preconceptions that Kamet has sort of had to develop. Kamet has put Costas in the position of, like, this is a guy who has power over me, this is a guy I have to appease, and so he's not thinking about Costas or observing Costas. He's uh, thinking about the the role that that Costas is supposed to be playing in this dynamic. Whereas Costas is like, I'm just some guy, you're just some guy. And so Costas, like, feels comfortable just liking Kamet right off the bat. Yeah. And uh, Kamet is not comfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kamet says he's still unsettled to have misjudged him and wary of seeming to doubt him. But I also think that because Costas is used to being underestimated and using that to his advantage, he knows also not to underestimate Kamet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, he doesn't uh, judge or resent Kamet for having misjudged him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he really, you know, he understands where Kamet's coming from with all this, and he's seems just in general like a pretty easygoing guy, like hard to offend. Yeah. <laughs> Which really, uh, really puts into perspective him punching Jen. <laughs> I wanted to ask you something. I wanted to ask you about something we see in um, the caravan site scene after uh, after they get jobs and meet their coworkers, which is so funny. Camet um, <laughs> has a whole paragraph describing the cup he's drinking from. Yeah, uh, and I wanted to ask, like, what? Why is that in there? Because we do get place descriptions in this book pretty often uh scenery descriptions whatever but not so much physical descriptions of objects so like they're sitting around drinking tea and Kamet narrates my cup was cracked and mended with staples ugly but serviceable the crack was a ragged black line like a road on a map surrounded by stains that might mark deserts or seas if only i could read them I ran my finger along the rim to make sure there was no rough edge before I put my lip to it. So, like, is this just a, a metaphor for maps and journeys and controlling one's own fate? Like, what mm. do you think? He's getting a little philosophical there. Yeah. And how he's he's sort of so concerned with the larger picture. Mm-hmm. What he's looking at is always filtered through all of his fear and and through his like Kamet's basic understanding of this situation i feel like this is crucial his basic understanding of the situation that they are in is wrong because he has the wrong information the just the the whole thing like to Kamet, he is on the run because nahusharesh is dead and so like everything that he everything that he sees everything that he thinks uh his evaluation of every situation is filtered through that right uh, right 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 that's like it's it's so urgent there's so much anxiety and uh that's it's it's not what's yeah. happening yeah show him a, a million different rorschach chests he's gonna see same thing every time <laughs> i also googled uh 
<laughs> mending pottery with staples, and it's a real thing. Oh, so did I. I uh, oh. I, I, I found a picture of a of a, of an eighteenth century plate that was mended with staples. Yeah, I found a little video. It's it's not a pretty mending technique. It's interesting that a lot of the people, most of the people, maybe all the people they meet, all the people introduced with names in this chapter are not mead. They are from other countries. Romange is from Feria. Uh, the Brailing Guard, who I think is named, but I don't remember. Scarret? Screll? Wait, hold on. I have the book. I'm holding the book in my hand. Skell. The Brailing, whose name was Skell or Scarrel, I was never certain which, had parted ways with his friends when they had decided to return to the north. Yeah, it's like the Mead Empire is a hugely diverse place. Yeah. Especially at this, like, social level. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, a southern Gant also. It seems like the majority of the guards are mercenaries who have come to fight somewhere far from home. And at the end of this chapter, the Brailing is telling them all about his plans to, like, fight for two or four years and then get enough money to buy a farm and go home. And everyone is uncomfortable and looks down and Camelot's like, I thought it was a good idea, but nobody else did. And Costas says to Camelot later that, uh, you know, everyone knew this won't come to pass because he's going to overstay his luck. He's going to get crippled with a wound, die far away from home. Uh, like, he can't go back home because maybe he has debts, maybe he killed the wrong man, but he's never going to see his home again. in Costas seems incredibly sure about this. And Kamet narrates, uh, The Brailing would go east and fight the Emperor's wars, carrying out the bloody business of larger countries eating up the littler ones. It wasn't a matter of theory in a tiny office in the Emperor's palace. It was the work of their lives, and the end of many of them. And they don't ask him about his past. Nobody asks... Uh, Kamek and Costas, where they come from, even though clearly something's up there. Everybody yeah. respects everybody else's privacy. Because mm-hmm. everybody, it feels like everybody there is running from something. That's how you right? end up there. Yeah, everyone is there for some shifty reason. Or maybe everyone has fake names, you know? Costas gives fake names for the two of them and no other information. And there's a tiny pause, but then the group just respectfully decides to move on with the conversation. And Costa says his name is Eris. Yeah. <laughs> All of these guards, including Romange, I think must think Costas is lying about Kamet's fighting skills to bring along his useless lover. We drew measuring looks, but no one commented. Mm-hmm. And uh, it says that he had drawn inquisitive looks from all the caravan people because he was. I was so obviously not a guard. And that he and Costas, we worked as one man, he and I, so that no resentment built up over my inabilities. And this is the, the, the first time that they're viewed by others as friends. Kamet is wearing the clothes of a free man, which, by the way, incredibly stressful. He still has the, the slave necklace on under his clothes. Yeah. And he can't take it off because that will be even more dangerous. Somebody's going to see him. He can't get rid of it. He can't put it in his pocket because there are pickpockets everywhere. Doomed to go wrong. Yeah, he can't even bury it without people wondering what he's burying. (laughs) 
Because you assume that everybody is living in such close quarters. Yeah, it says, like, he, if he tried to go out of sight of other people even to relieve himself, it would be noticed and thought weird. God, they must be so dirty. It says there was a, uh, just a layer of grit everywhere in the caravan site and nothing but dust. And Kamet is having a hard time physically with this journey. He's saying, like, I had never walked so much, like... I had traveled a lot with Nehuzrish, but uh, even though I slept on the floor, I usually had a pillow. Yeah, and so there's this, like, trade-off of this is a much rougher life uh, in terms of the physical labor that is involved, but he is respected by other people and, like, living (laughs) on equal terms with them. Even though he, like, he is not actually good with a sword. He's clearly... uh, not a soldier and uh all these guys are still like yeah it's cool yeah I, he, clearly you have a reason to be here fine and he he narrates that they're not gonna they're they're covering for him like pretending he's still a guard they're not gonna challenge him but they're not gonna rely on him for the defense <laughs> <laughs> and costas genuinely like makes friends with these people he has those you know he he joins in the competitions at the end of the day like wrestling or whatever yeah he's a social guy costas he doesn't have to talk much but it says his his meat is definitely evident evidently good enough to follow conversations and say what he needs yeah and he says that uh if costas listened much more than he spoke he had his broken meat as an excuse but kemet also calls Costas, the most eloquent non-speaker I ever saw in this chapter. Mm-hmm. It's so important that they end up liking each other. Like, would would this quest have been successful if they had not ended up having a positive relationship? There's this human element that yeah. feels so unpredictable. Like, Jen couldn't have known, or maybe he could have. And I like the idea that Jen knows both of these people well enough to know that they would be friends. Yeah. After, you know, a month of getting past the idiot stage or whatever. <laughs> Even though it's sort of counterintuitive because they're so different. Right. But Jen is really observant about people. He really understands people. You know, we joke that, that Jen was like, go travel for hundreds of miles on this camping trip so you can get a boyfriend. But uh, he sort of did. Yeah. <laughs> chapter three next time assassins send us your comments questions thoughts chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com be blessed in your endeavors thank you for listening this has been an amateur embroidery production find us on itunes stitcher google podcasts anywhere podcasts are